I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. I am exceptionally honored today to have uh, my very, very, very dear friend and wonderful guest, Mirabai Starr, on the program. Uh, For those not familiar with Mirabai, she is the author of, as I was just saying to her, probably the most powerful book I've read this year. It's called Caravan of No Despair, A Memoir of Loss and Transformation as well as new translations of the Spanish mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, and the award-winning book, God of Love, a guide to the heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. She leads contemplative interspiritual retreats worldwide. And that really barely begins to scratch the surface of what Mirabai does. It's a pretty modest bio, but uh, hi, Mirabai. How are you today? Hi, Chris. I'm great now, hanging out with you. Ah. Uh, Thank you. Um, So as I mentioned, you have this amazingly powerful book called Caravan of No Despair. We're doing this podcast today, September 15th. Uh, The book actually comes out November 1st. So hopefully this will be airing right around that date. But for listeners, just be aware that the book comes out November 1st from Sounds True. And I just, I love this book and my wife read it and she was deeply impacted by it. And, uh, it's really a a very heartfelt, heart wrenching book. Uh, but one that I found a lot of hope and inspiration from, I I mean, my emotions ran the gamut as I read this, as I believe anyone who reads it will, but I figured we'd start our conversation today by talking about this book. And I know for me, at least a big theme throughout this book is the transformational power of loss. And uh, that's something I can relate to in a very different way than your experience in life, but um, still very relatable for me. And I believe a lot of people in this world. So what I wanted to do, uh, and with your permission, Mirabai, is to read the prologue from the book. It's not very long, but I believe it will really um, help readers get a better feeling of just how powerful this book actually is. And then from there, we'll begin our conversation. Does that sound good to you? 
Sounds good, Chris. Thank okay. you. I love to hear it in your voice. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm honored to read it. So, the prologue. This was not the way I had pictured this day. The first copy of my first book lay splayed on the kitchen table like a bruise. Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century mystic John of the Cross. The quintessential teachings on the transformational power of radical unknowing, of sacred unraveling and holy despair. It's black and purple cover, thinly shot with the possibility of dawn. My mother and sister were taking turns thumbing through the pages and making appreciative comments while I paced. I picked it up, put it back down, and resumed my post at the window. Thirty minutes after the UPS truck had delivered my new book, the police pulled into the driveway. This was not a surprise. My daughter Jenny had been missing since the night before, when she tricked me and took off in my car. All night I rose and fell on waves of turmoil and peace, fearing she would not never return, certain that all would be well. Now our tribe had mobilized. Mom and Amy had cleaned Jenny's messy room so that it would feel good when she came home. Friends had gathered like strands of grass and woven a basket of waiting. Others fanned out in search parties across Taos County from the Rio Grande Gorge Bridge to the Colorado border. Miss Starr, an impossibly young state cop, stood at the front door holding a clipboard. A more seasoned trooper stood behind him, hands clasped behind his back. I'm Officer Ryle, and this is Officer Pfeiffer. Did you find her? Officer Ryle took into in the halo of heads that gathered around me in the doorway. Friends and family straining for news. Would you please step outside, ma'am? Is she in trouble? We need to speak to you in private, said the teenager in uniform. Okay, but not without my mother. Officer Ryle nodded. I reached for Mom's hand, and we stepped out onto the porch. The policeman got straight to the point. There's been an accident. Is Jenny okay? I grabbed his arm. He looked down at my hand. Your daughter has passed away, Miss Starr. Passed away? How do you know it's my daughter? Maybe they had her confused with some other dead girl. How do you know it's Jenny? Officer Ryle smiled a little. The purple hair, he said. The report you filed described her hair as curly and purple. He cleared his throat. The victim matches this description. Victim? Where is she? She's been taken to the mortuary. He looked down at his clipboard, as if he had forgotten his next line and had to consult the script. Miss Starr, we are going to need you to come and identify the body. The body? How did it happen? My voice was calm, as though I were inquiring about the final score in a soccer game. Is anyone else dead? She lost control, speeding down the east side of U.S. Hill. Almost at the Penasco Chernoff, he said. She was alone. Alone. My baby died alone. My thighs melted and my kneecaps stopped working. I slid to the cement slab and kept going until my arms and legs were outstretched. No, I whispered, and then I was wailing. No. In a dark night of the soul, as I'd explained in my little book, all the ways you've become accustomed to tasting the sacred dry up and fall away. All concepts of the Holy One evaporate. You're plunged into a darkness so impenetrable 
that you are convinced it will never lift. You may flail about for something, anything, to prop you up, but you grasp only emptiness. And so, rendered reckless by despair, you let yourself fall backwards into the arms of nothing. This, according to St. John of the Cross, is a blessing of the highest order. Tell that to the mother of a dead child. And, uh, and that ends the prologue. <clears throat> and that was a lot, a lot more difficult to read with you on the other line than I had anticipated it being. Um, <clears throat> so as I mentioned, Mirabai, before I began reading that, um, to me, the underlying theme of this book is the transformational power of loss. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the transformational power of loss and your experience um, that you write about in Caravan of No Despair. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, that was intense for me, too. I um, You know, you, you emailed me ahead of time and also asked me on the phone if it was okay to read the prologue, and I thought that was would be a very um, appropriate beginning for our conversation. And um, it was really intense for me to hear it, just as you suspected it might be, and as it seems to have been for you. And I don't consider that to be a bad thing, you know, the intensity and the wave of emotion that rose in me as I heard you, as I heard you telling my story, basically, um, back to me. And, and I guess that's as good a way as any to enter into that this conversation today that that the intensity of emotion, the emotional reality, is not a problem. It's not a broken thing that needs to be fixed or a, path, a pathological condition that needs to be healed. I know you know this yeah. as well or better than anyone, Chris, that, that our brokenness is not... Um, is not the same as a mistake mm. that needs to be repaired. It's an opportunity. It's a portal for transformation. I'd rather that we have more beneficent portals <laughs> that open us to these sacred spaces, these fields of holiness. But um, like it or not, this is what what happens sometimes to some of us great loss and and uh and so i'm not going to say no to what is and i guess that was my my greatest practice when jenny died because my entire being as a mother and as a person was screaming no protesting the reality of what happened Mm. i would be a monster to have any other response you know but but i also got in the non-rational or trans-rational part of myself that I, my task was to show up for what is, no matter how harrowing. And that didn't deny the, um, the tragedy of it. I, it wasn't a spiritual bypass. You know, that, that term I think is so excellent because so many of us who have been on a spiritual path for a long time have all the tools and all the language to be able to slap onto our human experience and and try to check out of reality. It's really insidious for people on a spiritual path because it looks like often we're um, 
we are having a deeper, more insightful encounter with reality when we when we use a certain kind of spiritual language or concepts. But often we are using that as a way to not be with reality. So my trick, the trick for me, and it was kind of a choiceless choice when Jenny died, was to actually be present with the full spectrum of what had happened. And that meant that inside this shattered being, I was able to hold the I can't stand this, reality sucks and I hate it, at the same time that I was experiencing a holiness I had never known in my life and for which I had always longed. <laughs> and so John of the Christ, so it was just incredibly um, ironic, I don't know what other word to use, that Dark Knight of the, my translation of Dark Knight of the Soul came out the day Jenny died. You know, that, that what John of the Cross is talking about is being stripped of everything that stands between us and a naked encounter with the beloved. All our concepts and all of our spiritual feelings have to go in a dark night of the soul experience. It's not about, dark night of soul isn't about depression, it's about transformation. And that only happens when we, when everything that we um thought about about ultimate reality is dismantled and taken from us there was an incredibly close connection for me between the essence of those teachings which we can talk more about and uh, and what happened to me when jenny when jenny died wow well thank you for that um and i would actually love to go deeper into those because something i wanted to ask you about well first of all as I said before, obviously I cannot relate to your experience with Jenny, but you know, we know one another and you know, I've had many difficult experiences in my life as uh, most listeners already know about as well. Um, but there is something to be said, I believe, as, as you were saying about those very trying times, you know, the times for me where I find I'm so beat up and broken down that there is no fight left in me. And in that extremely raw and vulnerable place, uh, I find is where the greatest growth and transformation is actually able to begin taking place because there is no fight left in me. You know, it's just a shattered, it's like the heart armor has been shattered and it's just a raw, vulnerable heart left beating. And I'm not encouraging people to go out and create these kinds of experience in life because, I mean, there's no shortage of them anyways. Um, but at least in my experience, it's been, like you said, showing up and being there with it to the best of our ability. And, uh, and I think that's really powerful. So I wanted to talk a bit about suffering and maybe we can bring some of those teachings in from the mystics that, you know, you're obviously extremely well versed in, um, but, but with, with suffering, pain, uh, whatever you care to call it. Uh, I often think of a quote from Ram Das, which has been very, very important to me in my own life, where he says that suffering is the sandpaper of our incarnation. It does its job of shaping us. And I really appreciate that because it helps put some perspective for me on so much of what I've been through in my life. Not that I want to or become the woe is me type of person, but it can be really hard for people who have endured uh, a lot of suffering in their life. So 
maybe if, if you can talk a little bit about suffering, any of your thoughts on it, any of the teachings that you believe uh, the mystics have given us that can help us with that, how we can skillfully work with it and show up for it, anything of that nature. Mm. Yeah, it was all very beautifully said, Chris. Right. And and as you also mentioned, there's, there's no need to manufacture <laughs> these intense states. There's no shortage of opportunities in our life to experience the the sandpaper of dukkha, of suffering yes. that, that shapes us. Um, and so the question is, how, how do we respond when those moments arise? Um, you know, all of the mystics of all traditions that I know of, um, from Jewish mysticism to Christian mysticism to Sufi mysticism and the so-called monotheistic faiths, to Hinduism and Buddhism with their understanding of of the uh, of karma and the fire of transformation, they all speak about annihilation, the annihilating fire that transfigures our souls, and that in the Sufi tradition, it's it's called fana, and fana is about this the annihilation of the small self, which is the separate self, which is actually the self that suffers from the illusion of separation, because ultimately there is no separation between ourselves and the beloved or the, or the source or the or ultimate reality. But here in this relative realm that we abide in, it sure feels like separation. And so the the annihilating fire of loss, for instance, which just seems to come with the human condition, is is an opportunity, according to the mystics that I know of, of every religion, to, to have that veil stripped away that separates us from all that our souls most deeply long for. It, it doesn't feel that way, at the time, you know, suffering feels like a, like a problem, like a big problem. But if we can breathe into it and kind of surrender and yield to what is and not turn away, then we might experience this paradoxical connectedness at the same time that we're in the throes of loss. And it is counterintuitive. Not only culturally, which certainly is the case, our culture does not encourage us to do anything other than consume too much and feel feel good in all the most superficial ways, but also I think biologically we're conditioned to turn away from pain. You know, it's fight or flight. So it's it takes a lot of practice to actually sit in the fire. And it's crazy, it's stupid. I mean I wouldn't recommend it, and yet I, it's, it's all I teach. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and, and sit there and see what happens. Um, because w- you have nothing to lose when you're in the midst of great loss anyway. In fact, that's often the time that we, the only time we finally get down to the business of, of surrendering. It's hard to do when everything's working out the way the little internal director had it planned. Mm. And... You know, the other thing about it is that for me, like when Jenny died, for instance, it wasn't a matter of flexing my spiritual muscles and saying, look how I can surrender to the fire. I can sit in the fire, watch me. I'm, 
spiritually adept. I've been working on this for decades. I can do it. It wasn't like that at all. It was like there was nowhere else to turn. And I know, Chris, that you get this to the depths of your being. It's when there is nowhere else to go, when we cannot fix the brokenness of reality. That's when we do it. And it's a softening and a yielding. It's not an armoring and a defending. It's not a proving of anything. It's I can't do anything else. I give up. And that giving up is the opening. That's what Rumi calls the secret cup. It's given to us in our deepest despair. It's what Teresa of Avila, the great Spanish mystic, called this beautiful wound. The beautiful wound is the, is the broken, open heart that longs for God. Yeah, I... Uh... As you know, I, I can certainly relate to much of what you said. And that was interesting. I, the, the longing for God, I was talking with Krishna Das uh, about a month or two ago. He was up in Ottawa and uh, performing, and I got to go hang out with him before the show. And we were talking about the longing of the heart and how even that in and of itself is is a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual calling. It's, it's really... Uh, it's a very interesting thing. And I know in my life for many years, I've had this profound longing and uh, emptiness feeling that would come and go. And in my case, I would use things like drugs and alcohol to try to fill it. Um, and those things obviously are just a very temporary and fleeting sort of fix, as is anything of the relative material level, level, whether it's food or sex, shopping, whatever the case may be, it temporarily will make you feel better. But then that longing comes back. And it wasn't until I stepped onto the spiritual path and really did start working with various practices that I started to find a way to fill that emptiness, um, but in a way that was sincere. Yet at the same time, not in a way where, like, that's what I love about Caravan of No Despair. You talk about in in the midst of your heartbreak and your pain, um, everything sort of, I'm not verbatim uh, quoting you here, but it kind of meant shit to you at that point. You were broken. And I mean, the one thing you didn't lose, I believe you said, was your connection with Maharaji. But otherwise, you just, you kind of felt I don't know. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but disconnected from it, or it didn't mean as much to you in that time or mean anything to you. Um, and that's something that I can also relate to. You know, we spoke last week and I've been going through some very difficult things, personal things on my own. And through all of it, the very interesting thing was that I, I felt disconnected in various ways from spirituality uh, so to speak, I, I meditation is a very important thing to me, but I went about three weeks, I think without meditating. Um, it wasn't a boycott. It just, I felt like I couldn't sit. Um, one, I was very sick, very ill. So I, I literally couldn't sit, but two, I wasn't trying to play a spiritual superhero through these instances. And I had to honor my experience. And, and as you said, bring a softening and a gentleness to what I was going through. And that was the best thing that I could do in that moment. 
and through those days. And since then, I'm feeling much better, and I've been able to reconnect with my practice of meditation and other things um, slowly but surely, but in a way that I'm listening internally and intuitively as best I can to what my heart's guiding me to do. I was actually out running today for the first time and or I'm sorry, I started running again at the end of last week, but it had been about a month since I'd been able to. And that's a very important part of my healing and my recovery and my spiritual path. And I was a few miles into my run today and I had this tremendously beautiful experience of feeling very soft and very gentle. And this is something I've almost, I don't think I've ever experienced it while running. I've had some really neat experiences while running, but I noticed that for a minute or two, and then I just felt this unbelievable sense of being held. And I don't know how to make much more sense of it or convey it to listeners than that. It was really just this beautiful sense of, you know, I'm running, I'm aware of my physical body, but it was as if every cell of my body was really being held. And I don't mean to over-romanticize this experience or anything of that nature, but it was a really beautiful thing after having felt disconnected for a while. So that was pretty big for me today. I kind of needed that. And I'm, and I remember as I'm running and I'm experiencing this, I'm gently whispering, thank you, thank you, thank you as I'm running, just because I didn't know what else to do or say. I probably didn't need to even say that, but um, it was a really beautiful experience. So I guess that kind of segues into the next thing I want to talk to you about. We've talked about suffering, but about healing and ways in which I mean I know you said like we we show up and and we sit in the fire and we do what we can do but um methods or means of healing you know how did you besides showing up for maybe we can use your you know your experience with Jenny as an example how did you begin to heal through that or if you don't want to talk about that any other just healing in your life or in general Well, first, Chris, what a beautiful experience on your run this morning. I just love hearing that story. And I think I can certainly relate to moments like that of of sheer grace out of the blue, where all of a sudden we just know that we are held and cared for in every fiber of our being. And and yes, the, uh, the naturally arising thank you is the perfect response the perfect prayer so anyway i just bowed about experience well thank you um you know that the thing i want to say about healing with regard to grief and loss and you know grief doesn't have to come from just the death of a loved one any kind of profound loss uh, the the appropriate natural response is to grieve and and so we can all fill in the blanks with any and all of our of our losses as we as we explore this the transformational power um, of grief and loss. But the one thing I want to say is that grief is not an illness, and we don't get over it. It's not like this this you know you've been very ill with a with an, an infection or whatever it's been. You know it started as as a flu kind of thing, and it went on and on and on, and you are finally healing, and you're running again, and you're and you're breathing again, and so that that's different than grief. Grief is is an integration of a terrible loss into the whole tapestry of your being. You know, I I often 
describe it as being like an amputation. So the limb doesn't miraculously grow back, but we find a new center of gravity in our lives. I mean, my daughter, there will always be in some sense, as my husband describes it, a giant hole in the landscape of our lives. And we don't deny that hole, but we have learned to build a garden, to grow a garden in that, in that shattered landscape. In honor of Jenny, actually. And so the healing is a way to honor her. And and the healing just it happens very gradually. And it took me a really long time. I mean, maybe not by... There are no external standards. Of, there's no time frame that we have to adhere to when we, when we navigate this kind of a, of a harrowing experience. But it took me, I would say, at least five years before... I didn't lead pretty much every conversation or maybe maybe not lead with Jenny's stuff, but it's managed to integrate it into just about every conversation. As some of my friends could point out now, um, it, it was just, it filled the horizons and, and so healing has been very gradual. There are two things that immediately popped up in my mind and heart. When you asked that question, one was I needed a lot of time alone and People from the outside, people who loved me, sometimes were concerned that I was isolating. But I needed to be alone in order to just kind of come to grips with what had happened and with the new reality that I had to live with. And so solitude and silence and stillness were an integral part of my healing. And then, and this is going to sound like a contradiction, but community was also has also been an integral part of my healing. You know, I live in Taos, New Mexico. I live um, in a place where a lot of my spiritual family also lives, the, um, you know, Neem Karoli Baba Satsang, but also my biological family and my extended family through marriage. So there's tremendous support in my community. And um, when something, and and I grew up here and it's a small town, so when something terrible happens around here, we all come together, and and uh, that for me has been an incredibly healing element. Is just knowing that I'm loved and held by this vast circle of beings, and and even the invisible net of mothers. I call it the net of mothers because I had this sort of vision early on in my grief process where it's sort of like your run, where I was actually crying. I was on the floor, curled up crying one day early on and after Jenny's death. And I suddenly felt like I was being held. And, and then I realized I was being held not by one being, but by a vast multitude of beings. And they were all mothers was all the mothers backward and forward in time who had also lost children. And they were all holding me. And I recognized in that moment that I was now part of that net of mothers and that I too was holding all the other mothers that were to come uh, behind me. And there was something about that that uh, never left me. I've always known that I am held and that I am holding too. And, you know, for those of you who are listening who have experienced the loss of a child, I, you know, you are part of this this net, or at least in my experience, you are, and I'm holding you too. 
That's uh, really beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I'm thinking about my wife, and I know when when she has hard times, she's very similar where she needs to retreat a little bit, and she does well uh, with nature and, and hiking and reconnecting with the earth in her own way, um, not in an isolating way. but And that's something that, for me, also has... Uh, has been my usual route, but it's interesting that you mentioned community because with all I've been going through recently for the first time, really in 37 years of my life, like I'm, I'm actually seeing the significance of community and reaching out. And that sounds kind of ridiculous for someone who's been in recovery for many years and has been a part of various 12 step fellowships, but, um, I'm very introverted I can write all day long and share my experience and I can, you know, do a workshop or teach here and there. But with the kind of personal human uh, interaction, that's always been very difficult for me. And uh, over these past uh, couple of last weeks, that's something I had to, it was very difficult, but I I started making a conscious effort to talk with a few people. Um, You know, yourself was one of them last week and really kind of opening up my insides and, and sharing them. And, and that was, that was one-on-one, but also doing that with, uh, within a community setting as well, um, elsewhere. And, you know, I was, I was talking to my mom this past weekend about that and how I actually felt, and this is me being hard on myself, but I felt dumb, you know, it, it was such a very elementary thing. I mean, you know, you're, you're taught, maybe not in school, but I mean, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, like you talk about things and you feel better. And I've heard that all my life, yet somehow I've never really begun doing it. But now that I have, in just even a a two-week period, I cannot tell you the amount of release I felt and lightness and healing. And I mean, there's still pain and, and that doesn't go away, but what a significant difference. So thank you for addressing both of those because there's certainly something I believe to be said for retreating and taking some time for ourselves, but also sharing ourselves with others. And then with the added benefit of it has the potential to help someone else who's going through maybe not exactly what we are, but something similar, or maybe we'll say something that they needed to hear. And how beautiful is that? You know, an act of service without even intentionally doing it. So thank you for that. You're welcome, Chris. And I just want to take the opportunity at this moment to remind people that, you know, not everybody has access to the kind of community support, for instance, that I had that I just described to you. And I don't want you to feel even more grief (laughs) when you think about not having that in your life. There are ways to to find it, to find your people, to find your community, you know, whether it's a 12 step program or a yoga class or or a church group there it does sometimes take effort when our impulse is to protect ourselves against connecting yes uh, to reach out and connect and i really applaud you chris for doing that and for having that level of of change and transformation in your own life in the last few weeks beautiful oh thank you i i know that you know with, with my life and where i've been in the past i kind of have two ways i can go either down or up and and 
I do my best to take these difficult times and use them as uh, change agents, if you will, in my life. And, uh, and so I, I do find gratitude. It's very hard to go through those things, but you know, it, uh, like Rhonda said, it, you know, the, the suffering, the sandpaper, it does its job of shaping us if we allow it to. And so I can find gratitude in those things. And thank you for also mentioning that, um, that ooh, cell phone, um, thank you for mentioning that there are ways to find communities because just for example, when I was very sick, uh, I physically couldn't get out to a meeting, but there's, uh, speaking just recovery specific, uh, there's a great place called in the rooms.com where you can attend online meetings, their video meetings. And that's just one example. I know you can't probably do yoga online and there's something to be said for in-person community. But as you said, if you're willing to do a little work, it's there. The help is there. It can be found no matter where you are. So, um, thank you for addressing that because that's so important for people to know and, and to, to love themselves and honor themselves enough to, to find that help in that community in whatever way they can, that works for them. So, uh, one thing I want to talk about, we've been talking a bit about the spirituality, spiritual practices, um, and how, (laughs) you know, they've, I think, for both of us have been very beneficial in our lives. However, we also have these experiences where, you know, where they've not meant much to us in the moment. Um, and when we were speaking last week, you said something that I jotted down because it really, it just spoke very deeply to me. And again, I don't know if it's verbatim, but you said something like, I don't know any enlightened beings. I used to think that was the goal, but I don't think we get perfection And so all we can do is be present for all of it, no matter how yucky, with humility, humor, and gentleness. And I know we've kind of uh, skimmed the surface of that earlier, but that was really very important for me to hear when you shared it. Um, And so, you know, when I talk to people about spirituality, I try to do so in a way that's as open and uh, all-inclusive as can be, where it welcomes people to find you know, what spirituality means for them and a way that they can really use it in every area of their life, not just when they're formally sitting on a meditation cushion or in a yoga class. Um, And also not, you know, getting lost in this grand vision of it being some amazing transcendent, you know, mystical endgame that we're getting ourselves into. So what, what are your thoughts on spirituality? I know it's a very broad question, but like, you know, what, what is spirituality to you? And for those maybe newer to the path, like how, how can we find spirituality in our lives if, if we don't even really know what that is for us? Well, you know, if you go to my, um, Facebook author page, it's just Mirabai star author. <laughs> you'll see that I've been posting excerpts from caravan of no despair. Um, and I posted one today called, that was from a chapter that I call Believing Everything. And it's, it's how when my daughter died, I, of course, was, uh, became obsessed with what happens to us when we die, right? And I had been exposed. I don't know if we've mentioned, Chris, today on this, on this, uh, com- in this conversation, but I have been exposed to and actually personally practiced almost every major religion on the planet in, in a pretty pretty disciplined deep way and nothing held up when jenny died all 
my practices failed me. All the belief systems felt like bullshit. Nothing, nothing uh, could was big enough to hold what had happened. And yet, all of it had something to offer. And so even the ones that completely contradicted, the, especially the beliefs that completely contradicted each other, they all, there was room in my vast shattered being for all of it. And so I just consciously chose to just let it all in. And little by little, spiritual practice came back. It was sort of like you described when you were sick. You couldn't sit because you couldn't even sit up. And that was like that with, with grief at first. I couldn't sit because I couldn't sit up. And, um, and yet, little by little, certain spiritual practices have come back into my life in a much deeper, more integrated way. And even the ones that seem to be not um, compatible have all woven this beautiful tapestry that is now my spiritual life, my inner landscape. And, uh, and I, would still, I would say that sitting practice, you know, silent sitting practice, is probably still my core practice, contemplative um, practice, but only insofar as it informs my life with a kind of deep, deeper aliveness and presence. So what I taste when I'm on the cushion, those blessed fleeting moments of getting out of my own way and being with what is, if I can bring that into my daily life, then I know the practice is working. If I can do it in traffic and if I can do it when the to-do list has is turned into Frankenstein and roaring at me to gobble me up, which happens on a daily basis. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know. The to-do list is really powerful. Um, if I can bring that presence into those moments. You know, this book, Caravan of No Despair, it sounds so sad, right? But you know, Chris, it's not actually a sad book. It's, it's a book that has a lot of joy and a lot of humor and irreverence. You know, it's about some of the de deepest spiritual teachings I know, the teachings of these mystics that I love, especially John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. But it's also um, not pious. It's, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, you could speak to that better than I could. I definitely don't take myself too seriously. And you know, I'm, I'm a very big fan of your work, um, but this is, for me, my favorite book I've read from you, and it's because you were able to weave so much of, of what you already teach, you know, from these great mystics and your experience and vast wealth of knowledge uh, from them, and then relate it to an amazing story. And absolutely, it is so important to let listeners know that there are certainly very heavy elements to the book. However, you present it in such a way where as you're reading it and going through it, even through the heartbreak of it, there's a sense of hope and a sense of inspiration in it. And when I finished that book, the word transformational really came to mind as we started saying in the beginning of this podcast, the transformational power of loss, you know, and so it, it, you're right, there is humor and, uh, and it is not just a, a Debbie Downer uh, book by any means. And I did actually, I cried, I laughed. I mean, I really, I really went through all of it as I was reading it. It was uh, wonderful. And of course, you're a brilliant writer. So, you know, done, done in only the way you know how to do. 
uh, it, it, yeah, I can't recommend enough, recommend it, excuse me, enough for readers. And you mentioned the post that you made today on Facebook. And it's funny you mentioned that because I had the interview, uh, all set up for us today. And, uh, I, I saw it about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes before we were getting on the call. I saw that pop up. And so I grabbed a pen really quick and I wrote it down because I loved it. You know, it's, it, I, I just thought it would possibly come in very handy for our conversation today. So it's, it's about a paragraph and I'm going to read it really quick for listeners. Um, because it just, it really, uh, I, I find it very profound and it, and actually can, can lead us into another topic that, uh, we'll talk about in a second, but you wrote, I do, and I do not believe in God. I believe in a life that transcends this one. And I also believe that when thing, when this life ends, we cease to exist. I am not preoccupied with logical consistency. I give myself permission to believe everything and then to stop believing that and believe something else. Any lingering hope for coming up with an ultimate answer to the problem of what happens when we die was obliterated with the death of my child. Um, and you write a lot of, uh, you know, you expand on that throughout the book. And and that's something, you know, that I've written in, in my own way about as well. And, and it made me think of Gandhi had said something to the effect of how his commitment was to truth, not consistency. That's what I thought of when I read that. And that's been very important for me to have an open and fluid relationship with life and my understanding of it spiritually and otherwise. Um, but you know, that first sentence I do, and I do not believe in God. As you mentioned, you've, you've studied in depth and practiced, um, basically all of the great wisdom traditions. And, um, so I'm curious with your experience, with your knowledge, let's tackle an easy question for a minute. What is God? <laughs> How do we come to know God? What What is God in your experience? You know, that speaking of lack of logical consistency, I have finally in my 50s come to peace with the fact that I have this kind of non-dual relationship with ultimate reality mm-hmm. where I know that I am not separate from all that is, which is love. And at the same time, as... Ramakrishna said, I don't want to taste, I mean, I don't want to be sugar, I want to taste sugar. And so I also have this deeply devotional relationship with ultimate reality, where that is quite dualistic. No, it's the lover-beloved relationship, where I am the soul, the lover, on fire with, with longing for my beloved, and that's the essence of my life. That's my namesake, Mirabai. I was given that name when I was 14 years old. Um, and I was named after the great Bhakti poet Mirabai from India, 16th century, just like Teresa Vavila, same time period, who wrote, composed these, these exquisite, ecstatic love songs to God. And so both of these are true for me. So as far as what... What do I believe about God? I believe that ultimate reality transcends all concepts and, of course, all language, and that we are not separate from that. And I also experience that as a love relationship. 
and it's what I it's it's all that matters to me. And with my mind, I actually don't believe in God. I think I think um, religious beliefs are often quite silly. So that's all true for me. At the same time, it doesn't feel like a problem that they're all three true. And I I don't think that's a problem either. It actually reminded me of a quote that I'm trying to grab from uh, that I'd used in uh, Everything Mind um, from Meister Eckhart. And right, he'd written, I pray to God to rid me of God. And he also goes on to say later, love God as God is, and not God, not mind, not person, not image, even more as he is a pure, clear one, capital O, separate from all two-ness. And in that, you know, what I heard you saying was recognizing the non-dual in the dual and how they're actually intertwined with one another, um, if I heard correct. I mean, that's at least been my experience as well. In the beginning of my spiritual path, I was, you know, very set on transcending the, the level of form and having these amazing mystical experiences and finding God and knowing God in this, you know, profoundly mystical way. But the further I went on, you know, thankfully I, I learned that it's, it's two sides of the same coin, the relative and the ultimate, uh, the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, you know, talking about the two truths of form and relative and understanding them, but understanding them in a way where it's not two, it's not one, you know, it's, it's all literally intertwined and, Ken Wilber does a really wonderful uh, teaching on this where he talks about everything as spirit in action um, regarding the form level. You know, it's, it's spirit constantly waking up to more of itself in, in its own evolution. And he talks about seeing things in the relative form level as ornaments of spirit. And that's been a really wonderful help for me, you know, is, is looking around and recognizing all of it as this manifestation from the unmanifest, you know, the form from the formless. And then as the Buddhists would say, you know, the emptiness of a, a solid entity in any of it, you know, it's all interconnected cause and effect. And it's a really, I mean, we can go, we could do a whole show on this going down that rabbit hole, but, um, yeah. So I appreciate what you had to say in it. And I definitely resonate deeply with that. It's, it's tricky you know, to, to understand or to experience, at least I found that it can be because, you know, well, if everything is spirit, even the ego nature, it's all, it's all God, it's all spirit. Then why am I not understanding it better? But then even resting in the fact that I don't understand is part of it. And, and again, on and on it goes, you know, so, so we sit and we practice. What else can we do? And we serve, and that's the other thing about this duality, non-duality business is if we get too caught up in it's all non-dual and there is only the formless, then how do we deal with the suffering in the world? Right. And so, and the same thing with the devotional um, relationship with ultimate reality versus the non-dual experience. For me, my moments of, of those blessed fleeting um, tastes of non-separation that, that when I come out of those unitive experiences, there's an overflowing love. And then it be, then it's expressed as devotion. So, so non-duality leads to duality in a really beautiful way. But the other thing is, those experiences of unification, 
um, the, the only way I can express them in the world is to realize my interrelatedness with all that is and do whatever is in my capacity to help alleviate suffering in this world. It's there. They're seamlessly connected. Absolutely. Like Maharaji taught, love, serve, remember. And, you know, which love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And serve is right there in the middle. Serve, be of service, you know, show up in the world and do what you can. Karma yoga, it's been tremendously important for me as well. So uh, thank you for, for mentioning that. And I know Andrew Harvey and our friend Adam Bucko, they they often stress that as well because it's very easy in our spiritual lives to for them to become narcissistic and only focused on ourselves and our you know, our growth and our being, am I far enough on the path? Am I doing enough? And it's I, 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 why not show up and, and take what you've been learning take that love and, and bring it, like you said, and serve others and, and learn to see God in others and God, you know, call it what you will, but, um, it's a, it's a profound, important teaching in my life and yeah, showing up for, for yourself and for, for life and humanity. So, we have a few minutes left. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you, and then uh, I'll give you a moment if there's anything we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about. But, you know, I was talking with our, our mutual friend, Raghu, a few months ago. Uh, and I've had this talk with others as well about how we're in an interesting time of transition right now, uh, spiritually speaking, with teachers. Um, you know, we just lost Dr. Wayne Dyer, um, who is a, a wonderful man. And we see others like Ram Das and Thich Nhat Hanh and Pema Chodron. People are, are getting older. Um, and there's a new generation of teachers and aspirants and um, people walking the path. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, Mirabai, and how we can keep... Maybe that's not wording right, but I want to say keep the lines of communication open, stay very connected with these generational gaps, because there's a big difference, you know, from what was happening uh, when Thich Nhat Hanh and Ram Dass were younger than there are for younger people today. And and a lot has changed in the world. A lot hasn't. But but how do you how do you think we can bridge those generational gaps in a way that these wonderful teachings that they have left us are not lost or are not muddied or watered down or do we even need to do anything at all i don't know do you have any thoughts on that you know there's a beautiful new book out called new monasticism Mm -hmm. by someone you just mentioned adam bucko and rory mcintee that really addresses this question in, in um, exquisite and detailed ways. And it's really written for for this emerging generation of spiritual seekers and teachers and activists, sacred activists. Um, so I encourage your your listeners to get hold of that the new monasticism. Uh, but what I what I see emerging is this kind of um, integration between the contemplative life and a life of action that I haven't actually seen in our teachers, in, in the elders who are who are now getting ready to leave this world. And so I think that these elders, and, you know, Reb Zalman already is gone. We lost him last year. Father Thomas Keating is, is getting older. There, This whole group of um, often men, 
often white men <laughs> that you that you and I have, have deeply um, studied with are are passing their the jewels to us. And what I see as the single most important shift in the paradigm is that the top-down guru model is no longer working and it doesn't make much sense. I don't think we are expected to sit at someone's feet and do everything they tell us. I think that we are being called upon to use discernment to, to take what is fruitful from the teachings that have been given to us from these great teachers and and also see the places you know where they don't work in in our current lives not not um project onto these beings some kind of perfection as we spoke about a little earlier when i said i actually haven't met any enlightened beings i've met some very wise very awakened beings who who are humble and willing to look at their own shadow and that makes me trust them more and we're not we don't have to to um unquestioningly buy into their whole system we have to use our own like the buddha said be lamps unto yourselves cultivate your awakening with diligence we have to stay very alert and so yes we must be the keepers of those jewels that come to us from these great wisdom teachers and find our own way and collaborate i think this emerging spiritual landscape is one of collaboration and connection where it is as the hopi prophecy says we are the ones we've been waiting for and that's a lot of responsibility but it's our turn to actually step up with whatever we've been given as imperfect as we may see ourselves you know all the prophets all the great prophets throughout history and every tradition have been reluctant that's one of the hallmarks of a true prophet you're not going to say hey pick me god i'm ready to to do this but we're doing it together and and women um are needed more now than ever we've heard this from the dalai lama to um really across the spiritual landscape feminine wisdom is needed more than ever before and it, that is a, a collaborative kind of model actually so very well said um thank you for that i absolutely agree about the new new monasticism it's a, a wonderful book uh, that I absolutely love and recommend people check out. And speaking of women, uh, another wonderful author who I think is so important today, her name is Sarah Beek. And I don't know if you're familiar with her, Mirabai, but... Okay, we're very good friends. Oh, yeah, okay, good. That makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> but for any any female listeners, even male listeners, I, I've read her work, and though it is geared more towards the feminine uh, I adored it. I absolutely love it. And uh, her most recent book is called Red Hot and Holy. And it's just a, a really another powerful, wonderful read and, and, and written in a way much like the new monasticism that's accessible for what I believe is, you know, this younger generation looking for truth and wisdom, but in a way that might they might be able to connect with a little bit easier uh, than the teachings of, say, maybe Ramakrishna or Ramana Maharshi. I mean, these are people that I adore and are very important to me, but I know that that, at least in the early stages, can be some difficult material for people to dive into. So 
there's a few more book recommendations for listeners. And Mirabai, before we go, well, first of all, I just want to, again, recommend your book, Caravan of No Despair, to listeners. It really is uh, probably the most profound book I've read this year, and I absolutely love it. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. We, I could have spent five hours with you on the on this call today talking about all the, the various things you get into, because I feel we've barely scratched the surface of that book. But hopefully listeners have gotten a, a feel for your heart and your message in that book. With that said, though, is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to share with listeners regarding the book or regarding anything else before we wrap this up? Uh, you know, the book is also because in any any important experience has a context, and the book is also about my counterculture childhood and growing up in Taos, New Mexico, in the in the early hippie days and the Back to the Land movement. So. For those who are looking for a good story, it's not just about you know my, the death of my daughter and the the teachings of the of the great Spanish mystics. It's also uh, a social commentary on an on an era in American history that I I think a lot of people find um, entertaining at least. So just wanted to mention the, that about the book and that both. Chris Grasso and Sarah Beek endorsed the uh, Caravan of No Despair, and you'll find them both on the back cover. I am, um, I guess the last thing I would say is I'm terrified. You know, this book's coming out in a few weeks, and I tell a lot of hard truths and expose a lot of people in the spiritual path, and um, it's scary. Truth-telling is scary, and I, I've made myself very vulnerable. So I ask for your prayers as I as I step um, step up in in this really naked, vulnerable state, and I'm not um, not going to pretend that that it's easy. Well, you're preaching to the choir. I certainly understand, and I I honor uh, your words very deeply. Um, thank you, Mirabai, for your heart, for your commitment to truth, and for your integrity, uh, because that is so important and you're setting such an example whether intentionally or not for for those of us i say on the path but just those of us in life who are are, you know doing our best to get through each day so i thank you um i bow to you i honor you very deeply and again uh, the link for listeners to buy mirabai's book will be on the mind rolling or mind pod network page uh her website will also be linked there, so you can find out more about Mirabai, who is always teaching, whether it's an in-person event or she does a lot of wonderful online uh, events with various people. So please be sure to pick up Caravan of No Despair, which comes out November 1st, and please be sure to visit Mirabai's website so you can find out uh, more about her events and go deeper with her into her work and into your own life. So Mirabai, Thank you so much for being with me today. It's really been an honor and a pleasure and, uh, and just tons of love and gratitude to you. Thank you, my brother. 